Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 19. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the last judge, Samson, with what's found in the outside record. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm circling back to cover everything else in the Book of Judges, meaning the history of the people, places, and things. Like the Book of Joshua, Judges is chock full of places. Fortunately, many of these are redundant with the earlier books, and therefore there is less to cover. But still, many lesser-known places. And with that, let's get started. The very first paragraph of the book gives us a bit of the history. From the text, Judah and Simeon came upon King Adonibazik at Bazik and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonibazik fled, but they pursued him, caught him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonibazik said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has paid me back. Israelites brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. This king, Adodibazik, was a Canaanite king only mentioned in this part of Judges. His name reveals little more about him, simply translating from ancient Hebrew to the Lord of Bazik. Despite this, a few things can be gleaned from the text. First, at the time when the warriors of Judah and Simeon arrived, he was relatively powerful, having previously conquered some 70 kings of the cities located in his general vicinity. And these may have included both Canaanite and Perizzite cities, or he was potentially allied with the Perizzites. I've mentioned this group, the Perizzites, a few times, but have never really given them their due. I'll get to them later in this episode. For now, just know that little is known about them, and the general thinking is that their name translates simply to rural people. So, King Adonibazik conquered the cities with lower lords and the nearby rural areas. Adding to the uncertainty is that there's no agreement on where his territory actually was. Given that he was defeated by Judah, with the assistance of Simeon, it's likely that it was within Judah's borders, perhaps spilling over a bit into Simeon. This would place it west of the Dead Sea, south of Jerusalem, and with Philistia to his west. Some scholars posit that Basic was near Gezer. Others think it was associated with Kerbic Izik, or the nearby Kerbit Salhab while still other researchers think Bezik is a mistranslation of Zadik, in reference to the story of Adoni Zadik. This fellow was the king of Jerusalem at the time. More on that connection in a minute. What all of this points to is the general uncertainty concerning specifics of this entire biblical episode. The location Bezik appears again in 1 Samuel 11, as the site where Saul assembled the Israelite armies to fight against Nahash the Ammonites, though there is no mention of this king, Adonibazik, in that passage, and that's the only other place in the text the location appears. Also notable in the narrative is the forced amputation of thumbs and large toes. The first thing to note is this is what the king had previously done to the kings he defeated, 
One thought about this is that it was done so they can no longer wield weapons, such as drawing a bow or swinging a sword. They also couldn't run away, which makes a certain amount of sense. But also noteworthy in this theory is that nothing is said of the individual warriors defeated. The thought around this is that the soldiers were simply made to fight for the victorious king, which also makes sense. No need having lame warriors that would become a burden. The only other possibility about them is they were simply executed. But if that were the MO, then it seems the kings would have met the same fate, so probably not. What is certain is that this king met the same punishment he had put on others. This is likely why this is the only place I can find that such a penalty was put into place, at least in the biblical text. It is rather similar to what was recorded in Hammurabi's Code, along with Leviticus 24. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. It's been noted that later, during the time of the Romans, so much later, over 1,000 years, Romans who desired to prevent conscription would commonly cut off their own thumbs. Ouch. After King Adonibazic had these digits removed, he was sent to Jerusalem, with some writers thinking he went there as a slave and he would die in the city. He was resigned to his fate, confessing that God avenged his cruelty to the 70 kings whom he had subdued. In other words, he knew turnabout was fair play. Other than this, nothing is known of his life after his mutilation. According to the 20th century biblical commentator Richard Coggins, Adonai Basic is probably the same person as Adonai Zadek, mentioned in Joshua 10, who ruled around 1200 BC. While some scholars think that the story of Adonai Basic is a variation on the story of Adonai Zadok, others argue there are too many differences. Back in Joshua 10, Adonai Zadok was captured after taking refuge with four other rulers in a cave and put to death during Joshua's military campaign in Canaan. Here, in Judges 1, Adonai Basic is instead captured in a campaign after Joshua's death, and likely in his own city. Then again, what's presented as proper names may instead be titles and passed down after death. More on Adonai Zadok in a minute. Adonai Basic's name is missing from the list of 31 kings in Joshua 12. Despite his probably already subjugating 70 other kings, maybe even done while Joshua was still alive. One other thing to note, the number 70 is considered by some to be similar to the number 40. Some propose that it's not literally 70 kings or 40 days, but used to denote a large but still uncertain round number. Quickly circling back to the Perizzites, they were a group mentioned many times in the Old Testament as having lived in the land of Canaan before the arrival of the Israelites back from exile in Egypt. Like I mentioned earlier, their name may be related to a Hebrew term meaning rural person. There's also the thought that the group could be a bit broader, also including residents of unwalled cities. 
The Perizzites were first named as part of the Abraham narrative in Genesis 13, so at least as early as 2000 BC. Their last mention was in the era of Ezra and Nehemiah, meaning around the 5th century BC, giving them a historical span of at least 1,500 years, one of the longest runs in the Old Testament narrative. Though the mention in the book of Ezra has its critics who put forth the proposal that the mention is in more of a historical context, I'll get back to the reason for that in a minute. The Perizzites peak, at least when measured within terms of interactions with the Israelites, seems to have begun in the time of Joshua and lasted into the period with the judges. In this span, they were frequently conflicting with the various tribes of Israel. Before this, just after Abraham, when Jacob was father to his many sons and a daughter, Dinah, Jacob lived in fear of the Canaanites and Perizzites. He told his sons Levi and Simeon, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. The brothers' reply was that the crime committed against their sister far outweighed any fear of the groups. Moses promised the Israelites to lead them to the land of the Perizzites and the Amorites, and he almost did. In the book of Joshua, and in multiple places, they were said to reside in the hill country of Judah and Ephraim, placing them west of the Jordan, between the Dead and Galilee seas, and in the area around Jerusalem and Bethel, among other various cities in the region. Though this is not to say they lived in a city just in the region. Later, the Parasites were among the tribes that were not subjected to tribute by Solomon, which is a bit ironic considering they were also mentioned in 1 Kings as having been enslaved by Solomon, along with various other groups. Ezra complained that the Levites would not separate themselves from the Parasites and other peoples going against Moses' warning against marrying outside of the tribes. In the outside record, there are no mentions of the Perizzites. Partially due to this, there is speculation that links them to better-known groups such as the Hivites and Jebusites, both better-documented groups from the same general area. There's also the thought that they originated from a small region known as Q in Assyria. And that's the little that's known about the Perizzites. In the next paragraph of Judges 1, we're told that Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. The name of Hebron was formerly Kirith Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahimon and Talmai, giving me three groups to quickly cover. Sheshai was an extended family of Anakim living in Hebron and named for a son of Anak found in Numbers 13. Recall that the Anakim were said to be giants living in the region, described by ten of the twelve spies, perhaps mentioned as early as Genesis 6. The giant families were driven from the city by Caleb in Joshua 15, and by the tribe of Judah, as told in this first chapter of Judges. The two brothers of Sheshai were named Ahimon and Talmai. 
Not much is known about the Sheshai, except that a pair of archaeologists have proposed that a person named Sheshai, a Canaanite king who ruled over parts of Egypt for some time between 1750 and 1650 BC, which was during the Second Intermediate Period, may have been the historical figure that gave rise to the biblical Sheshai. This would place his rule a few hundred years before Judah drove them from the region. As for Ahiman, he was one of the three giant sons of Anak, whom Caleb and the Israelite spies saw at Mount Hermon, also in Numbers 13. His name translates to either brother of the right hand, brother of a gift, or simply liberal. And Tamai is a name found infrequently in the text, referring to a number of minor people. Its Aramaic version was associated with the Greek Ptolemy, and the name is the origin of Bartholomew. Of course, most of this is well after the period of the Judges. After defeating the three giants, Judah and Simeon took on Debir. We're told it was formerly known as Kirith Sefer. In Joshua 15, it was called Kirith Sanah. Whichever name you go with, it was a royal Canaanite city. While the exact location is unknown, it's thought to be the same place as Kirith Rabid, placing it in the modern Israel and southwest of Hebron. Later in Joshua, it would be given to the Levites, so a Levitical city within the boundaries of Judah. Caleb promised whoever could seize Debir could have his daughter Aksa as a wife. His nephew Othniel took him up on the offer, would seize the city, and later become a judge. And that's it for Debir, but allows me to quickly cover what's known about Caleb's daughter. Aksa was Caleb's only daughter. Recall that Caleb was one of the spies sent into Canaan some 40-plus years before, and only he and Joshua encouraged the people to take the land at once, and only they would live to take it. Now, in the first chapter of Judges, so after Joshua's death, only Caleb remains, if you assume the generally accepted chronology. As for his daughter, her name translates to courageous. It could also mean adorned or bursting the veil. After she was given away, she asked her father for land that included upper and lower springs of water, probably located in the Negev. One last tidbit before moving on. In various Septuagint manuscripts, different passages give slightly different names, including Aska, Aksa, Aza, and Aksa. But then again, at least she was named, unlike Samson's mother. Next up were the natural springs that she was given. They are named the Upper and Lower Gulleth. There's also Gulleth Mayim. And unfortunately, nothing is known about these places outside of their mentions in this part of the text. The next part of the text includes a slight diversion. It reads, The descendants of Hobab the Kenite, who was Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev next to Arad. Then they went and settled with the Amalekites, so, Moses' wife's father probably split off and settled with foreign people near the city of Arad, which gives me one last place to cover in this episode. While the name in the text was simply Arad, 
archaeologists now call it Tel Arad, meaning simply that the town was found atop a small hill, a tell. Arad was located just west of the Dead Sea, in a region surrounded by mountain peaks, but generally in a valley known as the Arad Plain. The ancient city was about 6 miles, 10 kilometers west of the modern Israeli city with the same name. As for the ancient site, like many places in the region, the city was divided between the lower city and a smaller portion higher on the hill. The upper part was a later Israelite fort dating to the United Kingdom of Israel. But I'm getting ahead of myself and need to start further back in the history. The Tel was first occupied in the early Bronze Age, likely as a trading destination in the regional copper market. Though later, but still in the Bronze Age, it appears to have been abandoned. The theory about the abandonment proposes that copper and bronze trading shifted towards Egypt at the time, which coincided with the rise of the Egyptian Old Kingdom. It may have not been resettled, at least not the Tel until the Israelites did so around the 11th century BC. But what about Hobab and the Amalekites? Well, to be specific, they were said to have settled in the wilderness, in the Negev, which was near Arad. In reality, what this likely means is that they settled in an uncharted region, the wilderness, with the closest identifiable landmark being the city of Arad. When the Israelites finally did settle Arad, it appears it was unwalled for some time, probably over 100 years. Likely during King David's reign, a fort, along with a sanctuary, was built on the upper portion of the hill. Artifacts found within what was a sanctuary, itself within the citadel, consist mostly of oil, wine, wheat, and other such offerings. They were likely brought there by regional residents, a practice that seems to have lasted throughout the reigns of the Judean kings, perhaps up until the greater area fell to the Babylonians. Then such offerings stopped, but only for a historically short period, picking up again when the area was controlled by the Persians, the Maccabeans, the Romans, and even through the early Muslim period, meaning it was in use as a sanctuary and fort when B.C. turned to A.D., and long afterwards. So many offerings were made that pottery fragments from the various eras can still be found throughout the fortress. While the city was under the control of the Judean kings, so before the Babylonian captivity, the fortress was periodically refortified, remodeled, and occasionally rebuilt. It would last until Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar II destroyed it sometime between 597 and 577 BC. All of this while the Babylonians conquered the greater region, including the legendary siege of Jerusalem. The site now thought to be Tel Arad was identified in the 19th century by American biblical scholar Edward Robinson, but it would not be excavated until the 1960s. Robinson's identification was based on similarities in the name with what Arabic speakers were calling it. As for the excavations, they uncovered over 100 Hebrew-inscribed pottery pieces dating to about 600 BC. Most of the pieces were generic military correspondence between the commanders of the fort and are addressed to Eliashib, thought to be the fort's quartermaster. 
One piece did mention the house of Yahweh, which some scholars believe is a reference to the Jerusalem temple, though it could also be a reference to the smaller sanctuary found at the site. Speaking of this on-site temple, in its Holy of Holies were two incense altars and two standing stones. On the upper surfaces of the altar was unidentified dark material. At least it took a while to properly identify it. When the results from the lab came back, it showed residue from cannabinoids, boswellic acid, and orocetrine, the latter two probably coming from frankincense. After the Greeks, then Romans took charge of the region. A succession of new and rebuilt forts were constructed at the site, including structures built by Herod the Great. Tel Arad remained continually occupied until the Bar Kokaba revolt in 135 AD. It then laid unoccupied for about 500 years until the early Islamic period, when the former Roman citadel was rebuilt, then used for nearly 200 years until around 861, when there was a breakdown of central authority and a period of widespread rebellion and unrest. At that time, the fortress was destroyed and no more structures were built on the site. And that's the history of Tel Arad, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue pushing through the Book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.